So Luke chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 23. We're going to take it down to chapter 4, verse 13. And the title is The Temptation of the Second Adam. It's in chapter 4 that we'll see the temptation. It's the second Adam that's going to be revealed to us through the genealogy that we're going to read here at the end of chapter 3. So as the chapter closes, Luke presents us with this family tree of Jesus. It's verses uh, 23 all the way down to verse 38. And as you look at this, you may be familiar, and maybe you've considered that, you knowing where we are going, you've read ahead, and over in Matthew, there is also a genealogy that is over there. Now, we would expect, if you're not familiar with it, the expectation is you're going to go and you're going to read a similar list of names. And you will do that in some parts. Um, but there are aspects that Luke was going to add, and, and Luke also is going to differ from Matthew in that they're going to follow a different son from King David. So from um, Abraham to David, the genealogies are pretty much the same in both Luke and Matthew. But at David, the genealogies take a definite change. And it centers, that change happens around, if you just look at, uh, if you look at verse 31, you'll see that we're looking at Nathan, the son of David. Where over in Matthew is going to follow uh, David's son, Solomon, King Solomon, the one that we're most familiar with. So the names go in a different direction. And then the other thing that is different about this is that we find that Luke is going to take us, if you look at the end of verse 38, he takes us always back, all the way back to Adam. And Matthew does not do that. So there are these differences. And there are... Five, six, seven different reasons why people will put out for why there is this difference. Um, some of them are just, they, de they deny the Bible and the place of Scripture. But I think the one that makes the most sense, and just to be candid, we cannot be definitive about it because it's just not in the text. But the one that really seems to make the most sense is that um, they're following one is Mary's genealogy. Um, and that's what we have here in Luke. And the other one is that uh, we follow Matthew's. Uh, in Matthew, we follow Joseph's genealogy. And in Joseph, it goes through Solomon, which means it's going through the kingly line, right? And so he has a, a place to and a right as a, as a son, an adopted son of Joseph, to be an heir to the throne of David. But we also... It would seem, and it, it does not state it, that um, the genealogy in Luke is following Mary, although her name is not mentioned. But we do get this one little statement in verse 23. It says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. So the question is, if this says... Uh, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, then how could this be Mary? And I think it's that little statement, you know, as supposed. It's like, okay, you know, typically you're going to follow a genealogy through um, a man. You're going to follow through the father. That's the way they would typically do that. Um, so he acknowledges that Joseph was his son um, and then goes on to talk about um, 
Jesus' grandfather, Mary's dad, Heli. So that, that is one of the ways in which the differences of the genealogies are explained. I'm not going to spend any more time on it than that. Um, just know that that is one option. Um, this is what we do know. We don't have enough information, what was apparent and clear to the first century readers, as they had these two different genealogies. It, was not a, it wasn't clouded for them. It, it was explanatory. It was helpful. But through the years, um, genealogies having been wiped out, um, there's really just no way to go back and, and to pick up on this. But I think what is important for us to see is that Jesus is a descendant of humanity. He is a descendant of humanity. He has come through um, a genealogy. He's come from Adam. Um, Matthew stops at Abraham. And that's kind of like writing to Jews, mainly in the, in the uh, Gospel of Matthew. This was significant to them. But Luke is writing to um, Theophilus, a Gentile. And he doesn't stop with Abraham. He goes all the way back to the father of all humanity. In a sense saying, this is for everybody. And he traces them all the way back there. Jesus was not just a phantom or somebody just appeared on the scene out of nowhere. There was a long genealogical list of names that we are familiar with. Names that are significant to us and to the scriptures. Um, Just a couple of them to look at. In verse 31 again, about halfway down, it says, The son of Nathan, the son of David, that's King David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. So, you know, these are names that we have a little more information about than some of these other names. In verse 34, we see um, Abraham, uh, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Again, the patriarchs, names that we're very familiar with. Jesus has come through them. What is this saying? Saying that Jesus has a right to be uh, the, 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 sit upon the throne of David. He is the seed that has come from Abraham. He is the one. It can't be just anybody. Somebody can't just show up in Waco, Texas and say, hey, I am you know, the Messiah. Who's your dad? And who's his dad? And let's go on back. And where were you born? Were you born in Bethlehem? Were you born of a virgin? I mean, there's, these genealogies are a way for people to be certain that the one they are following that's called the Messiah is actually the one. Because if you don't have this type of genealogy that goes through King David and goes through Abraham, you don't have the credentials. It's like a passport. You have your passport. You have your driver's license. This is who I am. The genealogies serve to say, this is who I am. So it does have a significance for us to see. Um, and so we have the Son of God that's born of a virgin being established in these opening chapters, but he's also the Son of Man. Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man. And you cannot um, begin to, to separate. They are fused together as one. We believe that when Jesus came and took on uh, humanity, that forever these two natures are fused together and the one God-man, Jesus. That's saying something. The incarnation. We think about the incarnation. And Jesus coming as a man. Well, I mean, you know, we are at the top of the food chain, right? I mean, we are created in the image of God. Okay, that's, you know, 
That, that, that makes sense. But do we understand what a huge step down it was to go from being the divine to now have the divine being fused with humanity? This is why in Philippians chapter 2, it says that he humbled himself. That he came as a man. There was a humbling experience because he is divine. Not just a step above humanity. A world of difference between the divine, the infinite, and the finite. But this is what we have. We have the, the, both the one who's come from Adam, through Abraham, through David, and um, also has been come through the Virgin Mary, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. So that's just a little bit there about the, uh, the genealogy. Um, he takes us all the way back to Genesis, where we've been studying on Sunday morning, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so he is, he is a man, but he is also the son of God. And so this, this genealogy really does speak to us about those things. Now the first Adam, when he came and was set in that perfect environment, and the Lord took from his side a rib and made a helper comparable to him, and brought Eve to his side, they were given the commandment that they could enjoy the garden. They could do whatever they wanted to do except for that one thing. They could not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they fell in that temptation. That first Adam fell in sin. And that sin has passed down to every generation. And that's why we see the sickness. And that's why we see the disease. That's why we see broken relationships. That's why we see man separated from God. Because as the Lord said, in the day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And death entered in. But we now are looking at the second Adam. We're looking at the one who has come. And in chapter 4, we're going to see him go through a temptation as well. Now, I mean, there's almost like this, this crescendo that's come here. Because, again, you all are familiar with the, the, the account we've been reading in Genesis. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and his heel would be bruised. Now, here is the seed of the woman. It's been established so clearly in the opening chapters. The seed of the woman, Mary's child, has come. And there is this expectation that he is going to fulfill that very first prophecy given of salvation in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And now all of a sudden we find this second Adam heading into temptation again. We know how the story ends, right? We know how he's going to pass through this temptation. But if you're reading it for the first time, can you, can you just kind of put that yourself in that position? You've read Genesis. You know there's a, the seed of the woman coming. You read that God has overshadowed Mary by the Holy Spirit, and she's going to have a child. She has this child. It is the Son of God, and now he's facing temptation. Oh, no, wait a minute. The last time, the last time, you know, Adam, man, was facing Satan there in the garden, they fail. What's going to happen here? Is this seed of the woman, is he going to finally be able to deliver that knockout punch? Is he going to be able to crush the head of Satan? And that is a little bit of the tension that exists as we come into this scene. We know how the story ends. We know that he's going to get tempted three times, and we know that he's going to pass with flying colors, that he neither had inherent sin because he was the Son of God, nor did he have any acquired sin because he never gave in to temptation. 
And so we begin reading here at chapter 4. And let's just read this scene here. It says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended 40 days, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And we'll stop right there. So he comes in 40 days. 40 days is a significant number in Scripture, isn't it? It's analogous with the 40 um, days that the, the, the spies went into the promised land. And they spied out the land that they were going to inherit, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. But they didn't believe that God could give them this land because when they got there, they saw giants, Numbers chapter 13. And when they looked at these giants, they said, we were as grasshoppers in their eyes. I mean, we were like little tiny bugs, these giant men, nine feet, ten feet tall. We've got to go drive these guys out. Are you kidding me? They're going to crush us like a little pesty bug. And, um, and so they persuaded the entire congregation of Israel to not go in and inherit the land that God had promised to them. And so for each day they had spied out the land, God said, you will spend one year in the wilderness until that entire generation that did not believe me and had committed the great sin of, what is that great sin? Unbelief. That's the great sin. Because you did not believe until that entire generation dies off, then the next generation will come in. So 40 days in the wilderness. Jesus is in the, four, is, is in the wilderness 40 days. And he is being tempted. Satan comes to him at a time that, uh, you know, I don't think probably many of us have ever attempted. I have not. Fasting for 40 days. Um, so I'm not speaking from experience, but what they say is, obviously you get really hungry, but then that, that pain, that hunger kind of just subsides. But around day 40, it comes back within some incredible intensity. And so he, he, what, it, what we read here, if you will, is that he chose an opportune time. Now, we're going to find that statement again at the end of this passage we're studying. He, this, Satan is going to leave him, but he's going to look for a, another opportune time. This is an opportune moment to come and to tempt him because he is so hungry. He is so in touch with his flesh. I don't mean fleshly like carnal. I mean fleshly like body needs. He is well aware of what he needs. But he has been led into the wilderness, no doubt, uh, fasting, drawing near to the Lord, knowing that his public ministry was about to come. And so there he is, the second Adam, facing Satan, but will be victorious. And how Jesus responds to him is the way we should respond in, in the face of temptation. He says, hey, take this stone, turn it into bread. And the Lord responds to him, and there in verse 4, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So you can see how in verse 4 it's italicized. It's, it's, it's telling you this is a quote from Scripture. And it's taking it really all the way back um, into the Old Testament. And, and just saying, listen, this is where um, the children of Israel waited and, and trusted in the Lord to supply for them. 
So he, and we'll, we'll read that passage in Deuteronomy there in just a moment. But when we find ourselves in their wilderness, it is not necessarily, taking from the example of Jesus, meaning that you have done something wrong. If you've been a believer for any amount of time, you know what it's like to be in those dry places. If you've been a believer for any period of time, you know what it's like to be feeling kind of isolated. You're like, what's going on? What went wrong? Well, let's ask the question in Jesus' life. What's going on? What went wrong? Well, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and nothing is wrong. And so there can be those times of wilderness experiences that you're going through, and we need to know that just because you're in a, if you will, a dry time does not mean you have done something wrong and you have fallen out of favor with God and He has abandoned you. How important is it for the Lord to know that He's not been abandoned by the Father? Because He's, he's throwing Himself on the Father. He says, I'm going to wait upon my God to supply my needs. I'm not going to go and take it into my own hands. When we find ourselves in the wilderness, understand that it may be very, God's very plan for you. Let me, let me just say this. You might say, man, nobody's reaching out to me. Nobody's talking to me. Every time it seems like I, I reach out to somebody, it just goes flat. Nothing's happening. Nobody's around me. Okay? Maybe some of us need to be corrected because of that. That's a possibility. It's a very good possibility. We just need to slow down and look and hear that you have a need You've been reaching out, and we haven't paid attention. That is one possibility. But you know another possibility is? God is saying, I want it to be me and you right now. I want it to be just me and you. I don't want you running to anybody else. I don't want you finding comfort in another person right now. I want you and me for 40 days, or whatever that time period may be, so that you will draw near to the Lord, so that you will lean upon Him. Oh, fellowship is important. We are exhorted. We are commanded to not forsake the gathering together of, of, of believers. We are told to come together and to edify and use our spiritual gifts. It's all over the New Testament. But it's also true that we need to learn to trust upon God and not man. So maybe the isolation, maybe the loneliness, maybe the lack of response to the things you're going through is God saying, Come to me. I want you to spend time with me. I know that you want the comfort from others, but I want to be the first one to comfort you. I want to be the first one to touch your life and to bring you that strength that you need. So God allows our faith to be tested, but he never seduces us, never induces us to sin. So he's out there being tempted the temptation is not from God the Father. He cannot tempt. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were in our study there in Genesis and looking at the temptation of Adam and Eve. And one thing that we saw there and the note that we made is that when Satan comes, he really has three, three, a three-pronged attack. Do you remember this? We looked at 1 John chapter 2. So you might want to turn over there to 1 John chapter 2. Verses 15 through 18. But the key verse in this section is verse 16. And he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Who is a God of this age? It is Satan. In this present time, this world is under the sway and the power of the wicked one. And what he 
seeks to do is to cause us to have the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life be the place where we, we fall. What's the lust of the flesh? Living for pleasure. Meeting those, those uh, bodily needs that would cause us to sin or just bodily lust, not needs. Or how about the lust of the eyes? Well, this is all about possessions. And the pride of life is all about position. And these three things, pleasure, possessions, or position, are the way Satan always comes. He will use one of those three-pronged attacks to seduce you. He did that with uh, Eve. There in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we read, So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eyes, right? Lust of the eyes. She wanted to have that piece of fruit also. And the tree desirable to make one wise. Pride of life. This is how he came, the first temptation, and this is how he's coming with Jesus. I mean, this ought to tell you that this is how he approaches. So in this first temptation, where he, he's seduced to um, turn the stones into bread, this is, this is the, the lust of the flesh. This is, hey, you have a need. Respond to the need. Um, physical needs, listen to this. Physical needs do not trump spiritual dependence upon God. Spiritual needs do not trump your spiritual dependence upon God. I've got to eat, so I'm going to steal. No, 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 you don't have to do that. Yeah, physical need is real. But want to know what's more real than that? Is your obedience to the Lord. Your faith and trust in the Lord. That is the most important thing. Do we believe that? That my yieldedness and my, my uh, bowing to Him is the most important thing. This seduction to the lust of the flesh is to satisfy that which He's feeling. Jesus was hungry, therefore He was vulnerable. It was the opportune time, Satan believed, to ask him to go out on his own, not wait upon the Father, and to just do it himself. Take things into your own hands. Do something about it. Quit waiting, man. It's been 40 days. Don't you think that's long enough? And I, listen, does, this sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? How long are you going to wait for God to show up? How long are you going to depend upon him to come through in that situation? You've got needs. You have things that you've got to attend to. This is real stuff. Not nearly as real as our obedience to the Lord and our dependence upon Him. Well, Jesus doesn't flinch. And He does quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it's, um, you get down to verse 3. It's where he, um, he quotes from. But I want to read this whole section of Scripture to just give us a little more context so Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Where's Jesus? He's in the wilderness. And how long has he been there? 40 days. So he led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Listen to this. To humble you and to test you. To know what was in your heart. 
whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. I mean, that context just kind of illuminates this whole scene a little bit more, right? Where Jesus is responding. He's saying, I will wait upon my Father. I'm going to trust in Him. I must obey Him. I am out here to be humbled. I am out here to be tested. I am out here that He might know what is in my heart. And He has promised that He would take care of me. So I will wait until the provision comes. And that what we read there in verse 3, the middle of verse 3, is that he fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know. What's manna? Manna was this bread-like substance that miraculously was supplied by God every single day on the ground for the children of Israel for 40 years. That's a lot of bread. But they had to have faith. They had to have trust. Now, when it first began, they did not believe God, did they? Because he said, you can collect, uh, you know, uh, this, but do not store it up. Every day I'll give you no more, except on, uh, you know, the day before the Sabbath. Get enough so you don't have to go out on the Sabbath. Get a two-day supply. Well, they didn't listen. They, they just hoarded it, and they got it all piled up in their house. And then this is when that manna... Uh, went rancid and worms were in it and everybody had to deal with this you know, gross manna. And the Lord is like, I told you, I'm going to supply for you every day. My word to you was, I will supply bread for you. And you need to believe in my word. They had faith in the word of God. Every time the children of Israel went and collected one day's supply, they manifested faith. Because they believed that tomorrow... It will be there again. I mean, you can hear the conversations, can't you? Oh, come on. How many days do we actually think this stuff is going to keep coming? I mean, this has been going on for weeks. Is this going to go on for like, they said we're going to be out here for 40 years. Really think this is going to be here for 40 years? It was there for 40 years. And every day they had to manifest that faith to say, I, I trust in you and I wait. I'm not going to take more than I need to because I believe tomorrow you're going to come through for me. And the Lord did. So he says, when Jesus says that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word. What word? I will supply fresh manna each and every day. And maybe that's a word for you. Wait for the provision. Wait for the supply. Those things that you have need of in your body, those things that you're feeling that you've got to address and take care of. No, no, no. Wait upon the Lord. Satan loves to get us to find help and assistance outside of the Lord, doesn't he? You know, go, go here, go, her, go to her, go to them, and get your help. Why not wait upon the Lord? You know what the psalmist says, all day long I've waited upon you, Lord. Which is a way of saying, I'm not going anywhere else. My eyes are fixed on you, I'm trusting in you, and I'm not going to do that. So Jesus passes test number one, and he is not going to be led by his bodily appetites or trying to benefit his body in some way. 
Move on to verses 5 through 8. And here we see the kingdoms will be offered to Jesus if you worship us. And this is the lust of the eyes. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you. Wait a minute. How does he have the authority to give? Because when Adam and Eve sinned back in the garden, they forfeited the right to this earth. And it's been in Satan's hands all these thousands of years. That's why we see a world that's messed up like it is. Because the God of this age is in control. Jesus does not rebuke him. He doesn't say, what are you talking about? You don't have this. But he is the, the prince of the power of the air. He's the one that's seducing kings and kingdoms. Verse 6, And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. I guess one day he's going to give this to the Antichrist, isn't he? Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. You want me to worship you? You want me to bow down and give you glory so I can get the kingdoms? When Jesus came to this earth, he died upon that cross to redeem mankind, but he is coming back a second time, and he will rule and reign over the nations of this earth. That's something that's going to come. And Satan is saying, Listen, there's a shortcut. You can skip over all of this pain and all of this misery. Let's just jump to the end and I'll give you all of these kingdoms. But of course, he's a seducer and he's a liar. And he never pays what he promises. Have you found that to be true? Oh, lust promises so much, doesn't it? Sin promises so much. And then you eat of it. And then you taste of it. And then you begin to reap of it in your life. And it's not tasty. It's painful and it's hard. So Satan is the god of this age and he makes this offer. um, And he says, listen, you can can fulfill the Father's mission by going and and just taking a shortcut. You don't have to do it the hard way. Well, what's the hard way? The hard way is God's way in this instance. Was to come and to live and to die upon the cross and to rise from the dead. It was the way that had been established. And this is what Satan loves to get us to do. You don't have to do it that way. Oh, come on. You don't have to be like one of those serious Christians. You don't have to be a full-on Christian. I mean, don't, don't be like overly zealous. You, you, know, you know who, um, you know, the person that comes and says, you know, you're too zealous. Well, when they say that, look at their life. What is their zeal for Jesus like? Is this something you want to model? No, it's not. And so we should be committed in following the Lord. So if you have those people that are chirping in your ear and saying, there's an easier way. Oh, I'm a Christian too, and I don't live like that. I don't walk that way. Recently I had a conversation with somebody, and it's like, I goes, I'm a, I'm a believer. I'm, I'm, I'm totally right with God. And I said, you know, I just I said, well, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I do? And I said, I, I don't think it's right between you and the Lord. And I said, you know, you say you believe in Jesus, but I got another question for you. Does Jesus believe in you? Because that's what really matters. 
Does Jesus look at my faith and say, that's the kind of faith that I give people? Or is, is the faith that I have just some kind of, you know, watered-down, milk-toast, you know, uh, Christian, easy believism. There's a lot of it out there. And, and people feel, feel, are being told it's okay. Don't be so serious. Don't be serious about the things of the Lord. And follow what he's put out there in front of you. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 17 You can turn there if you want. It. You, you may be saying, why is, why is Satan offering Jesus to nations? I mean, he is sovereign. I mean, he could do whatever he wants, right? He, he, at that moment, he, I mean, he, the sovereign, omnipotent God could have said, you know what? Let me just show you. They're mine, not yours. But Satan always seems to have a way of coming and trying to lure us away from what we already have. God dwells outside of time. This event, although happening in the history of mankind, it's as good as done. The kingdoms are the Lord's. But what Satan's offering are not the real kingdoms. It's just it's a, it's a departure from God. And that is, if you can follow this, that is exactly what happens every time we're tempted. He's always offering us something we already have, but it's not really the same thing. It's a second best. It's some kind of detour, something that will harm you, will ruin you. James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He is offering him something that seems to be perfect. But the perfect gifts come from the Lord. We talked again about this on our study in Genesis. Whatever you bring tempted to uh, disobey the Lord, to give in to a relationship you know is not right, whatever it is that you're facing, that temptation is a second best offering to what God has. And so this is why we find this. Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived about what? Don't be deceived in thinking that thing that you're feeling and being enticed to do is somehow going to outdo what God has given you. That, that is such a key to overcoming temptation when you are fully convinced that what you have is what you need. The Lord is my shepherd, I what? I shall not want. And the Lord God withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. You have everything you need. Nothing is being held back from you. So whatever is being offered to you that would cause you to go away from, from Satan, it is, it is not the best. The good stuff comes from God and from following him and obeying him. So he offers him the kingdoms of the world, the lust of the eyes. Here's this 
Talk about possessions, right? Here's all the possessions. He's like, no, don't need it, don't want it. I'm going to wait upon the Lord. I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to worship him. You get behind me. I am going to be fully devoted to God. And that was the life of Jesus. We move on to verse 9, 9 through 12. We get the third temptation. And here the temptation is throw himself down off of the, uh, off of the temple mount, off of the temple itself, and put on a show for everybody. You know, no parachute included. Just jump off. Watch what happens. Verse 9, then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So what Satan is saying is, Hey, you need some, you need to kind of, Get this thing on a fast track here. You're 30 years old, and if you really want people to follow you, you need to do something sensational. You've got to do something amazing. And when you do that, the Word of God says, and here's just an idea, throw yourself off the temple, this high place, and as you're coming down, all the crowds are going to be around. They're going to watch the angels holding you up and gently setting you on the ground, and everybody's going to know that you're somebody to listen to. That you're somebody that ought to be paid attention to. And Jesus responds and says, It has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So each one of these things, a shortcut, a, um, a way to um, get his needs met outside of trusting the Lord, to get the kingdoms outside of the plan that God had laid out, um, to get the attention that he uh, needs as the Messiah, Satan would say. And again, it's all a shortcut rather than doing it the way the Lord has called him to. So he uses scripture again um, to confront him. You know, in, in some ways, this is almost like, you know, like, well, I've never been tempted in, in a way like that. Think about this. Have you ever found yourself in a place that says, you know what? God has said that he'll supply for all my needs. So you know what? I'm just going to buy it anyway. And, if, and then God can just provide for me. So I'm just going to jump out and I'm going to do this. And it's, it becomes a sin of presumption. I'm going to do this crazy thing. I'm going to step out in this ill-advised step. Not a step of faith. A step of presumption. I'm putting myself in a place that, God, you've got to show up. And if you don't show up, then this is all going to crash to the ground. And we should hear the words of our Lord, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Oh, if he leads you in a step of faith, step out. Step into the Jordan River. Hold the staff over the, the Red Sea, right? Do all these things. Chase down the, the Philistines. Just you and your armor bearer, if God tells you to do it. But if he's not telling you to do it, and you're just like, I'm tired of waiting. God's got to move and you, you do something presumptuous like this, this is it's tempting the Lord. And so the Lord rejects all three of these things. Look at verse 13. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So he's going to come at him again. Um, we know that 
We know one time when he uses some similar language, and that's when Peter comes at him, right? And says, hey, quit talking about you, know, you going to the cross and stuff. Don't do this. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So we do know that he was tempted um, at other times as well. So the opportune time. Do, do you realize that Satan and his cohorts, they study and they look for the opportune time. You can't know an opportune time unless you're observing and you're watching. What is the opportune time? After a great victory. After a great victory seems to be an opportune time for Satan. We, we relax. We begin to just kind of uh, take our, you know, our, we let our guard down. We're just, we're enjoying the moment. And boom, the enemy comes in. What's an opportune time? If you were to ask King David, what's an opportune time? He would say, when you're idle. When you're not out fighting the battle at the time of the year when the king should go out to battle, that's when you see a Bathsheba. It's when you take your hands off the plow. It's when you say, I need a break. Other people can work on the kingdom of God for a while. I'm just kind of tired. I'm going to relax. I'm going to enjoy myself. I deserve it. Opportune time. The enemy will be right there. You know when you rest? You rest when Jesus rested, when your work is finished, and you're, you're up there in heaven with the Lord. That's when we rest. Oh, I'm so young. I have so much to do for the Lord. I'm old. I've worked so hard. Now it's time for me to, to sit back and use your free time like you've never used it before. Seek ye first, what? Kingdom of God. That's first at all times in our life. When you're young, use your energy. Use the zeal. Use the strength. When you're older, use the wisdom. Use the time. Use the resources. It's all God's. It's all the Lord's. So Satan leaves. He departs from him. And the temptation is over. I, I want to make a distinction about temptation because we're referring to this temptation that Jesus went through, but it was of no fault of his that he found himself being tempted. And what I mean by that is, let's think about Samson. Samson was tempted because of his faults, right? He put himself, you know, in places that he shouldn't have been. He put himself among a company of people that he had no business being with, and the temptation would come in times like that. And, and so he, if you will, handed the enemy the opportune time. And whereas Jesus was simply following the Lord, and Satan looked for the opportune time. So a big difference of, of temptations, right? One is I step out and I put myself in a place to be, uh, to be a target. And other ones, you're just simply following the Lord and he seeks you out and makes you a target. So make certain you're not making Samson type of uh, foolish moves. Being in a company that you have no business being with. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You know, it seems like every time you read the words, do not be deceived, it's like the Lord is getting a highlighter out. And saying, watch out, everybody gets deceived right here. This is, this, right here, this is where you're going to get deceived. So don't be deceived because this is where everybody gets deceived. Hanging out with people that are not on fire for Jesus is going to be bad news for your walk with the Lord. Oh, I can handle it. Yeah, do not be deceived. This, see, see the reason? 
why it says do not be deceived. Because we say, I can handle it. I can handle it. Oh, I want to be a witness to them. Okay, that is a good thing. It is a good thing to be a witness. But when, when, when are you going to do it? When are you planning on sharing? Like the very next time you get together? Well, you know, it's been six months, eight months. I've been waiting. No, no, no. You're, you're not. There's something else going on. You're not going to them to share the gospel. You're going to get something from them. And that is some, you know, a social uh, benefit of, of being with them. We are to be those that go and give. So don't be deceived about this. Parents, stand your ground. <laughs> with your kids, stand your ground. And I want to, I'm going to give you parents, some of you parents already know this, but I'm going, to, I'm going to share this with you. And this is such important information. You do not have to have a reason for why you say no. You don't have to have a reason. And you're like, well, wait a minute here. And I'll give you an example. Has the Lord ever said no to you and you don't know why? Yeah. Many times he'll say no. And we don't fully understand. So God does not feel like he always has to inform us. And with our kids, there are times where we told them no to a particular situation. There are many times where we told them no to a particular situation. Why? And here was our answer. We don't know, but in our spirit, we just don't feel like this is a good thing. So we don't have all the information. God, that's all the information God gave us, so that's all we can say is we don't know. But you're not going to do it. I'm telling you, we, were, we can look back now and we just say, thank you, Lord, for speaking to us and knowing that these friends or this situation or that event was not going to be a good one. So this is, this is how Jesus stood in the face of temptation. He used the word of God. He was dependent upon the Lord. He wasn't looking for shortcuts. We need to stand and we need to follow that example. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 through 14, it says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That you may be able to bear it. Think about that for a moment. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you've been tempted and you did not escape it? Everybody can say yes. So how, do this, how does that reality of my life align with this idea that there is a way of escape? There's a way of escape. Did you take it? Did I take it? See, this is the thing. There's a way of escape, and the way of the escape maybe sounded like this. Don't get in the elevator with that lady. You know that she's been after you. Just don't get in the elevator. You're like, you know what? I've got to go back to my desk. I've got to pray. <laughs> you don't have to say that part. Just go back to your desk. Or maybe, you know, you're getting ready to head out. It's evening time and a friend says to you, you know what? I, I, I just feel like you should not go. Oh, there's your way of escape right there. The Lord gives you, a, you know, this little word. Don't get in that elevator. Don't go to that club. Don't go to that bar. Don't go to his house. Don't go, to the, don't go hang out with those guys. And, and, and you, you hear that. The, the Lord is giving you a way of escape. You've got to take the way of escape. And so often we are like, we just blow by, you know, the, the, the road signs 
The Lord's saying, exit now, exit now, last exit. And you, you get past the last exit, and you are so far into the temptation. The lust has gone, and it's in a full raging um, uh, manifestation in your life. And you're like, all right, Lord, Lord, if you don't want me to do this, then give me a way of escape. And he's like, like way of escape? I give you ten of them. And you blew by every one of them. And so... The way of escape will come, but understand that the way of escape, of escape is not a helicopter swooping in with a big hook, snatching you out you know, of some you know, sinful situation that you've allowed yourself to be in. It's a still, small voice of the Lord saying, just don't go tonight. But why? Just don't go. I've got to have reasons why. Just don't go. And you go anyway. The way of escape. So know that there's a way of escape, but learn to listen to that still, small voice. Um, James 4, 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit and resist. You've got to be convinced that you are going to obey God. That's my life. I submit to God, and I resist the temptation. You don't entertain it. You don't contemplate it. You don't weigh it out. You don't begin to look for some kind of you know, special dispensation that you can engage in that sin. No, it's just like I'm submitting to God in his word and I have concluded that I'm going to resist the devil. That's how my life is going to be lived. Stay strong in the scriptures. We see that in Jesus, but in 1 John 2, 14, it says, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. That's what I need. Strength. That's exactly what I need. I need to be strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. You want to be strong? And you want to overcome the wicked one? That middle part. Abiding in the word of God. Staying in the word of God. Psalm 119.11 Your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. The important place of the word of God. So we, we've got to know that there's a way to get out. We need to submit and resist. We need to stay strong in the scriptures. We need to walk circumspectly. Ephesians 4.27 says, nor give place to the devil. Again, we already talked about this point. Samson gave place to the devil. David gave place to the devil by staying at home when he should have been out at the time that kings go to war. So don't give him place. And, you know, he'll, I mean, he'll take a toehold. I mean, he's happy to just get one toe in there. How many of you remember the book, If You Give a Moose a Muffin? Anybody remember that? That is your enemy. You can look it up. It's a kid's book. But you got to walk circumspectly and not have, let him have the first place in your life. If you keep the, you know, the, the foothold of Satan out of your life, he's not going to overpower you. He's looking to position himself in your life and in those relationships. Just don't allow him to have the first place. Walk circumspectly and say no. Lastly, you got to gear up. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 talks about the spiritual armor that we are to put on. Read it when you get home. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. I'm just going to kind of summarize it. It says that we should have be girded with the, our waist with truth, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take the shield of faith with which we will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always. 
So truth. Truth. The truth of who Jesus is as Lord and Savior. Who is he? We live in a time when truth is, you know, being questioned. You know, you can't, there's no such thing as absolute truth. And they're absolutely positive that that is true. No, the truth is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We must stand on that. Righteousness. We're to take the, the breastplate of righteousness. What's that? We are made righteous in Christ Jesus. We are accepted and justified. I need to have that strapped on. How does that help? How does it help for me to know that I have been made righteous? Because you don't want to mess it up. It's like anything that's valuable and new and precious. You don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to get messed up. You protect it. And you've been given brand new shiny salvation. <laughs> that is glorious and wonderful. And so understand who you are, that you've been accepted and you're justified, that you are righteous. Because so many people say, oh, my life is so messed up. I've made so many mistakes. What does it even matter anymore if I do this? See why it's important for us to know that we've been made righteous? He also talks about peace. That our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It's that calm rest of the soul that I'm right, in a right relationship with God and I have nothing to fear. When we are walking in fear, we make so many bad decisions. But when I'm standing in the peace of God, then, then I can make decisions from faith. So understand the rest that the Lord has for you, that you're in a relationship with God. That you're no longer at, at odds with the Lord. You've been made one with the Lord. You have peace with God. And we are told that we should also take the shield of faith. That strong confidence that God will see me through all of my trials. The fiery darts are coming in. And you're like, I'm not going to make it. Well, wait a minute. Shield of faith. I believe that God's going to see me through. I believe I'm going to get through the other side. So keep that shield up. And salvation, the helmet of salvation, is that hope that he, Jesus, will return for me and bring me into his eternal kingdom. And So I don't give in and I don't give up. I've got hope that I'm going to stand with the Lord one day. And the word of God. Well, we've already talked about the importance of the Word of God. We've seen it in Jesus' life. And then the last thing on that list of gearing up is in verse 18 that we pray always. All of our weapons are spiritual weapons. And calling upon God for help in spiritual warfare is so important. Lord, help. Lord, give me strength. Lord, give me wisdom. And to pray. So these are the, the seven articles of clothing that they're the truth, it's righteousness, it's peace, it's faith, it's salvation, it's the word of God, and it's prayer. This is how we will stand and be victorious. It's not just for Jesus to be victorious. He wants you to be victorious as well. You've got, you have everything you need in Christ Jesus to live a godly life. Everything. I don't know, I think I need this, I think I need that. Did the church need it 200 years ago? Do they have the same access over in the mountains of Nepal to what you're saying you need to live this godly life? So then you have an advantage that they didn't have 200 years ago? Or you have an advantage that they don't have in Nepal? Everything you need to live a righteous life is found in Christ Jesus. And you can do it at any time in history or any place on the planet. You need to trust in the Lord and wait upon him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
that you've sent your son, that second Adam, and that he was victorious in this first encounter with Satan. And he was victorious in that last encounter on the cross when his, head, his heel and foot came down on the head of Satan and crushed him and destroyed him. We are thankful for the redemption that we have. But as your son was in this earth, so we are. And so, Lord, we want to overcome. We want to be obedient to you. We want to be yielded to you.